I'm going to target uh, people in the UK of Italian descent who have beards, who are named Mateo. And I feel a little bit targeted here, but go on. <laughs> Welcome to Media Minded, a podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction. Produced by Shout Out UK, the UK's leading political and media literacy education platform, in association with ACT, the Association for Citizenship Teaching. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, and I'm here with Damaso Reyes a international journalist with 20 years experience in reporting and is the founder of Clarify Media. Thank you, Damaso, for joining us. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm originally from the United States, but I've spent uh, the last 20 years living and traveling all over the world, uh, reporting from places like Rwanda, Indonesia, uh, as well as Europe. And the past few years, I've actually been specializing in media literacy education. And how, how, how why the switch? Why, why, why media literacy? Well, you know, it actually started, I started uh, as a volunteer, as a journalist going into classrooms, uh, talking to young people studying media literacy yeah. about the work that journalists do. And, you know, it became clear to me, uh, as I think it has to so many other journalists, that um, the primacy of journalism and journalists in terms of conveying information has really gone by the wayside. Um, a lot of young people don't understand why they should be uh, going to fact-based mm. and standard-based news mm. organizations and, and listening to journalists when it comes to conveying information because they have access to so many other sources of information. So I really see it as uh, part and parcel of the work that journalists actually now have to do. We not just we not only have to convey information, but we also have to explain to the public how we do what we do, why we do what we do, why that's important, and why it's important for them to actually uh, listen to journalists and, and listen to fact-based information as opposed to all the other choices that they have. That's interesting because it almost sounds like the the role of what journalism and the media has almost changed a little bit to also an educational one. So what is the role of the media and sort of responsible journalism in the 21st century? Well, it's to educate and to inform. So in, in, in some ways, I think it's actually not that different than it was in the 20th century. I think the difference is, is that there are a lot more competing sources of information. So um, you know, I would add a third uh, element to that is transparency is actually also a really huge part of what journalists uh, do. Journalists can no longer say, trust me, I'm a journalist. We have to show our work. We have to explain to the public how we know what we know, why we believe mm. what we believe. Yeah. Um, so that they can be better informed and they can understand that we're not simply saying, trust me, as so many other people are saying, but we actually... Uh, put a lot of rigor into our work, and we're here to really try to convey the truth and accurate information. Mm. It's it's interesting you say trust because trust is a is a is an interesting thing. I think it's very very hard to come by, and especially in the UK. I mean, trust for the media in general has plummeted. Um, not so much as trust in politicians. I think that's still beating it out, but trust in the media is is not great. And, and how has this affected sort of your work as a journalist, but also media in general? Well, I think it's it's made it much harder. 
I think, uh, you know, when I started my work as a, as a journalist more than 20 years ago, um, I could believe or I could trust that people would trust me because I was a journalist. Uh, now that's very much not the case. Yeah. Um, and obviously, because of that, there's been a real rise and a real need to help educate young people, especially as to what journalists do and and why they can be trustworthy or why they should be uh, considered a you know the go-to source for information. So, um, on the one hand, I think it's it's made my job as a journalist harder, uh, mm. but it's also given me a, another role as a as an educator with that I probably wouldn't have conceived of when I when I first uh, started out as a journalist. Yeah. Now that having been said, I, I just want to note one thing: is that during uh, the current coronavirus uh, outbreak, people actually have been turning to standards-based uh, journalism, uh, whether it's tel- television or radio or print or you know, the web, uh, which is a really interesting uh, outcome. People are looking uh, for information they can trust, so that that has been a very interesting development. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people have now started to shift more towards fact-based journalism whereas before the kind of trust in that media just wasn't there? Um, and so we're turning to more obscure or random sites that sort of fitted more their interests. But why do you think now, considering the epidemic or the pandemic, sorry, um, that, that trust is almost returning a little bit? Why, why do you think that shift? Well, I think people realize that it's, uh, it's a question of life and death. Uh, and the decisions that they make, uh, whether they choose to socially isolate themselves, how they try to protect themselves when they do have to go out, that these are, these are really important decisions they make. And these decisions are based on information. So are you making a decision that's based on accurate information or misinformation? I think one of the things that we've seen over the course of this uh, pandemic is there's a lot of information out there. Some people are saying wear a mask. Other people don't wear a mask. Only wear a mask under these circumstances. You should wash your hands for this long. Uh, and obviously, there are a lot of fringe uh, conspiracy theories yeah. or fringe ideas yeah. of how to protect yourself or prevent the coronavirus, which are even being shared by uh, global leaders. So I think the general public, uh, rightfully so, it feels very confused. They don't understand or or they're having a hard time knowing what to believe and where to find that information. And so uh, journalism and, and, and standards-based journalists now are once again rising to the fore as a source of accurate standards-based information. I mean, it's, it's interesting because do you think that's um, across the board? Because, I mean, one thing that we've seen, for example, especially during this pandemic, is that misinformation and essentially conspiracy theories are very much rising to the top and becoming... Um, not mainstream by any means, but very much becoming widespread. And you, you mentioned young people quite often around, you know, making sure that young people know what fact-based journalism is, which I think is very important. But a lot of these misinformations that are being shared tend to be shared by older generations. And I wonder, is, is that trust in journalism coming back? Or is there almost like a rift between certain individuals who are coming back to trusting and going to those official news sites and others that are actually going down bigger rabbit holes of misinformation? Well, I think uh, what's interesting about the, the current media landscape or information landscape more accurately is that people are not just getting their information from one source. So um, Ofcom, the British communications regulator, 
um, has been doing weekly surveys of you know how people are getting information around coronavirus, and one of the things that they note is that you know eighty two percent of people say that they're getting information from BBC services, but forty two percent also say that they're getting information from their friends and family. So people aren't getting information from just one mm. source; they're getting it from <clears throat> people aren't sorry people aren't getting information from just one source, they're getting information from a variety of places. So, you know, someone might turn on the BBC and listen to a standards-based news report, but they also might go on Facebook and see something that their aunt has posted. Um, and so that information tends to swirl together. And I think the big challenge that a lot of people have is they don't understand how to um, weight that information. Uh, you know, I may love my aunt, uh, you know, Susie, <laughs> but she's not a, you know, medical expert. She's not a doctor. She's not an epidemiologist. So when she conveys information about, you know, how likely you are to get coronavirus by doing, you know, X, Y, or Z, that's very different from an interview on the BBC with an epidemiologist or a medical doctor who's giving us uh, the best advice at the moment as they know it. And I have to understand that as a consumer of information. I have to understand that my love for my aunt Susie should not translate into trusting and believing everything that she says on life and death uh, topics. But, you know, and it, it sounds kind of funny, but that's actually what happens with, with social media. We transfer our trust and our love for people and our respect for people into somehow trusting the information that they're also. Uh, providing us. And those two things, we need to begin to decouple those two things because we may love our relatives, but they're not always the most accurate sources of information. I, I, I relate to that so much. I mean, I've got a load of family members that share all sorts of stuff around coronavirus from, um, you know, how you get it to how you can um, cure it and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, why, where are you getting this information? Like, why are you sending to me this on WhatsApp? Or like random recordings from apparent NHS staff workers. Uh, have you heard this? It's all crumbling. And it's like, well, actually, this was debunked on full fact about a week ago. Um, so, yeah, you're 100% you're right. you got to decouple that that love and trust that you'd normally have for a family member um on other things and when it's like well i'm sure you have a lot of wisdom but you're not a medical expert so maybe taking it with a pinch of salt but i mean it's interesting because um especially like the, the the people that send me this kind of stuff just in my family for instance are tend to be from an older generation um and and like i know of your work and obviously of our work we deal primarily with with young people and have done for for a long time but there seems to be an issue here with older generations being caught out by by this stuff, potentially more than than younger generations getting caught out by, by misinformation. Do you think that there is there's an issue there? Because obviously older generations, they aren't in school, so it's harder to get to, to engage with them and get hold of them. And, uh, and is that saying that the older you are, the harder you are, the harder it is to, to shift you out of your ways? But do you think there is there is an issue there of older generations being caught out by this stuff? And I wonder um, why. I, I think that, you know, older folks certainly are uh, being targeted by this misinformation. Um, you know, if you're retired, you get to spend a lot of time on social media uh, or 
listening to talk radio or listening to, to cable television. But the truth is, is that, you know, misinformation is something uh, that spans generations. Unfortunately, we're seeing, while the percentages may be slightly different, we're seeing young people um, self-report that they have a really hard time telling the difference between what's real and what's not, between fact and fiction, between standards-based information and misinformation. And we know from uh, studies by the Stanford History Education Group, uh, the vast majority of uh, school-age uh, students do not have the ability to tell the difference uh, between basic standards-based information between news and opinion. So, um, you know, I think that there, there's been a narrative that's developed that's that's somewhat comforting for, say, us Gen Xers or, or millennials that, oh, you know, it's it's all the boomers. They're, they're the people who can't tell the difference. But, you know, I go on my social media feed every day and mm. every day, uh, there's yeah. a, a almost a tidal wave yeah. of, of disinformation or misinformation or rumors or conspiracy theories uh, by people my own age or people who are younger. So I, I think that, you know, unfortunately, much like the coronavirus, there was this feeling among young people that they were invulnerable, that they could go out and party and, and not be affected by it. And we now know that that's very much not true. While it may certainly affect older people, uh, more seriously, young people can also uh, fall victim to coronavirus, and they can certainly fall victim to misinformation, uh, as my as my social media feed attests to every day. Unfortunately, yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, I we had the um, fortune or misfortune of um, speaking to um, a guy in in the UK. I'm not going to mention him or his organisation because I don't believe in promoting this kind of garbage. But they, he specifically as a propagator of the um, 5G um, conspiracy theory. Um, and I was interested to speak to him about, you know, first of all, how he gets his, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, but how he gets his message or his, his stuff out there. Um, and it was interesting hearing from him that actually his audience is um, somewhat more top-heavy around the older generation, but there are a lot of young people that are supposedly buying into this kind of this kind of misinformation more and more. So there's definitely something to be said about you know young people are not um, immune to it 100%. I think that maybe there is there is a thing to be said that young people maybe are a little bit more tech savvy, so are potentially slightly less. Um, able to get caught out by this stuff just a little bit. Maybe there is a slight. Well, you know, I, I, I think that you know that's that's a that's a really good point you bring up because I think this is this is something that you know I, I certainly encounter in my work as an educator. Um, we often conflate um, the ability to manipulate and use technology with the ability to understand how technology works. So uh, you know, young people can you know work that iPad in, in ways that you know maybe I can and I'm not even that old but do they know what an algorithm is you know if you if you ask your average you know 15 year old what an algorithm is you'd probably get a blank stare right but understanding algorithms is really important if we're doing search if we're uh, if we're on social media and we get things that are promoted to us why are why am, why am I seeing this as opposed to, to something else so um, 
you know, I think that it, it's important to, you know, for us, especially as, as folks who are trying to educate uh, young people, not to conflate this idea that just because a, a young person knows how to navigate the internet or, or navigate a piece of technology, that they actually understand how it works. And helping young people and the public in general understand how technology works, how social media uh, landscapes work is essential in helping them to avoid misinformation and to become uh, you know, savvy users of technology. No, I think, I, think that's, I think that's a good point. I guess in in my view, I was more thinking around the like very, very basic, for instance, understanding that Photoshop is a thing that you can quite easily doctor an image. Um, and because maybe some young people have done it themselves or have no friends that have done it, they can kind of see how easy it is to be done. Whereas someone that didn't grow up with that tech at such a young age may believe that actually it's a lot harder than realistically possible to to edit an image. I mean the algorithm thing I completely I completely appreciate and understand and obviously this is not suggesting that young people don't need media literacy. I definitely 100% think they do. Um <laughs> but it's just a question of does that technology does that that tech literacy level a little bit support the kind of uh how can I phrase this like being able to understand or see that okay if if that image it's probably photoshopped or maybe they can tell that a little bit more do you think there's, there's some truth in, in that kind of bare bone basic side of things so i think um i think the part that is true is that uh because maybe younger people um understand and, and maybe even encounter manipulated images more that when we educate them there, it's maybe more likely to take. I think what's really interesting to me is that, you know, obviously young people understand Photoshop and video manipulation. And if you look on things like TikTok, video editing, it's, it's really amazing to see what's being produced during, uh, the pandemic, but it doesn't make them more skeptical of information as it turns out. Um, it can make them more cynical, which is problematic, right? Being cynical means that you're not going to believe anything. Being skeptical means that I'm asking questions, that I need uh, things proven to me before I believe them. Uh, I think, unfortunately, what we're, what we're seeing is a generation that is sort of technologically capable, but they haven't been taught to understand how to verify information online, how to do reverse image searches. Um, I was on a tour of New Zealand and Samoa talking to uh, secondary school students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at every encounter, I would ask, you know, how many people here, how many students here have done reverse image search? And hardly any have. So, you know, there is a, there is a facility with technology that I feel like younger people have. But in order to really uh, be uh, media literate, to be media and information literate. That's a skill that actually needs to be taught. Um, I think one of the, one of the challenges we have is, is educators and as older people is we assume that, um, young people are going to gain these skills through osmosis. Uh, that just because they're in this milieu, because they're constantly online and because they they know how to code, that somehow that translates into being media literate. Uh, and unfortunately, that's just not true. 
in order to be media literate, it is a skill that you need to be taught. And that's why you do the work that you do and I do the work that I do. And so many others uh, are coming into this field because we're beginning to understand that young people, just because they, they're able to make a great TikTok or, or Vine video, doesn't mean that they actually can tell the difference between a piece of propaganda or a conspiracy theory and a piece of standards-based news. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, I... I've always believed that media literacy and, you know, political literacy, um, which is understanding how our how our democratic system and structures work, should should be a part of um, the educational system, you know, as part of the curriculum in some form, ideally as a subject, uh, if not built into other subjects as a bolt on. Because uh, the information landscape has changed drastically just in the time that we've been alive. Absolutely. I'm um, just thinking about the... Um, like I remember joining facebook for the first time when i was in my teen years um and you know the days of msn and all that but that's i mean now thinking of tiktok and all the rest of that it is just it is crazy the level of um platforms and the amount of information that you can consume in any given day i mean you know when i talk to young people i i point out when i was their age when i was you know 12 or 15 or or you know school age if I wanted to read a London newspaper, I had to take two trains, go to a library, and they would hand me, you know, maybe a two-week-old copy of The Guardian. Uh, today, you know, I have access to not just The Guardian, but almost any other newspaper anywhere on earth. Uh, that's a pretty radical change. That's not just one order of magnitude. That's probably several orders of magnitude of, of information, which is great. Mm. I mean, it's wonderful. You know, whenever I hear someone or read someone on social media complaining that, you know, the media isn't covering issue X, Y, or Z, or the media isn't doing a good job of reporting on an issue they care about, I almost invariably respond where are you getting your information? Because there's so much quality journalism out there that we, generally speaking, don't have a don't lack for it. But is it in our feeds? Is it in our social media feeds? Is it in our daily consumption of information? And I think that's really the challenge: is to make sure that, especially uh, for young people, to incorporate quality information, standards-based journalism into your social media feed. It's actually not that hard, but it is something that you have to do actively because one of the things I feel like, and to get back to maybe a slightly earlier point, um, if you're on social media, the only information that you're seeing, generally speaking, are the people you follow and adverts. Yeah. And so if you don't actively try to leaven your social media feed with high quality information, then you're going to get, you know, you're the celebrity you follow, you're going to get the influencer you follow, you're going to get your friends and maybe your family, but you're not necessarily going to get the information you need. And that's a really important thing to communicate to young people because um, I think they often don't understand that they are living in social media bubbles. They're living in social media echo chambers. Uh, and it's it's great to be able to follow your friends and to follow a, a f football star that you like, but are you getting the information you need about what's happening in your community or uh, how to keep your community safe? Um, if you're only getting your information from those groups, then you might not be getting accurate information. You might not be getting all the information you need. 
No, and that's, and that's uh, the, the social media bubbles is a really interesting point. Um, but I, how how can people? Because one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with, um, young and old actually at this point, but I think young people more so, is um, this issue of what is good and bad journalism. And, you know, if you just look at, you know, news sites, they look reputable. It's actually incredibly easy nowadays to buy a theme, create a WordPress site, and then start pumping out misinformation that looks as swish or as good as the bbc's for example so just looking at a website and being like, oh that looks credible is just not enough um so how do you go about verifying a source or verifying information or a story how can you bit start to build that positive relationship with good quality journalism right. well you know i think this is really something that um you know, adults first, we need to understand uh, these concepts, but we also need to actively communicate them to young people. So if we're going to ask young people to uh, listen or watch or read standards-based information or standards-based journalism, we have to teach them what those standards are. Um, accuracy, um, does a, you know, are the claims that are being made by a journalist true? Um, do st do uh, journalists show you who their sources are? You know, if you read an article and it's only unnamed sources, that can be a red flag. Um, is there fairness in the article? Um, does the does the piece of you know so-called journalism or, or you know self-claimed journalism uh, actually seem like it's pushing one side of an agenda? Um, these these are some of the standards that we can begin to to talk to young people about um, is the is the author uh, transparent? You know, one of the things we often see when we see misinformation is that we don't know who has written this blog post or who created this meme or who's saying this quote. So that's another thing. You know, as a journalist, I always put my name on the work that I produce. If I see something and it's by anonymous or by a an alias. That's to me. That's a red flag. Reputable journalists almost never do that. So there are things that we can uh, we can teach our young people and, and also learn ourselves as some of the ways in which uh, quality journalism or standards based journalism distinguishes itself uh, from other sources of information. Another really important uh, thing to point out is that standards based news organization and journalists, if they make a mistake. They own the mistake. They say, hey, I made a mistake. Here's the mistake. Here's what I got right. Here's what I got wrong. Uh, and that's actually something that's really, really important. There are some people who point out uh, when a journalist makes mistakes and say, oh, that's, you know, they're fake news. Look at them. They made a mistake. But that's what we should do as, as standards based journalists. We should, if we make a mistake or make an error, we should. Uh, make sure that everybody knows what that error is and, and say how we're going to try to prevent uh, a mistake like that from happening again. Right. Because, you know, making a mistake or making a correction, especially when you're when you're writing, I guess, on a, um, a quite a fast moving topic. Um, it might not even even been that you got the information wrong. It could have been that at that moment in time, that was the information that was available. That's correct. Um, and it's important to correct it. And that's not misinformation. That is not false or fake news or whatever term you want to give it. That's just human beings writing at what's available and correcting a, a human error at that point, which is a really important distinction, I think, that sometimes gets mixed up or, or often used by either politicians or other 
or other individuals to point the finger and say, oh, that journalist not being credible or that journalist giving misinformation, when in reality, people make mistakes. Right. And I, and I think it's really important, especially within the context of the current uh, pandemic, to understand what journalism is and what it's not. Um, journalism is certainly not perfect, um, especially when we're talking about breaking news. Uh, and we also have to understand that um, the situation and information changes. Journalists will get access to more information over time. We'll know, we'll understand something like coronavirus much better. So a piece of advice or that a, a, a journalist uh, gives, you know, quoting a medical professional three weeks ago, may no longer be applicable. It doesn't mean that in that moment, that wasn't the best information that we had access to. It means that the situation is incredibly fluid. So we have to also learn how to understand information within a breaking news Mm. context, Mm. that information, unfortunately, is often fluid, that the facts change and evolve over time uh, as the situation changes. And that doesn't mean that what was reported three weeks ago is a lie. It means that the situation and, the, and how we understand the information has changed. So I think that, you know, unfortunately, I, I think a lot of people look to, uh, you know, journalists and, and news organizations as they want them to be un- infallible. They want them to never make a mistake or only tell the truth all the time. And, those things are impossible. You know, when you have a situation like coronavirus, what I know about coronavirus as a journalist now is going to be very different six months from now. I'm going to try to, as a journalist, tell you the most accurate, unbiased information I can. That doesn't mean that six months from now, if you look back at my reporting, knowing what you know in the future, that that everything is going to, you know, be perfect. Unfortunately, it's not. But, you know, we have to, we have to, be incredibly media and information savvy so that even when we're getting information from standards-based news organizations and journalists that we trust, we also have to be able to be critical and look at that information and and really understand what that information is saying and what it's not saying. When journalists use words like could or possibly, that's not the same as saying is, right? But a lot of times I feel like, especially on my social media feed, uh, people gloss over that. They say, oh, well, you know, this journalist or this news organization said that definitively. And if you actually go back to the report, they said no such thing. But that's the way we, you know, we want to interpret the information. We don't want shades of gray. We want certainty. But the reality is, is we, especially, you know, in a pandemic like this, there's just, there's only shades of gray. There's, there's very little certainty. Right, right. And that's, and I think it's, it's true of a lot of different professions. Like, I remember reading once, um, a bit about a uh, academic um, who said, for example, and this is completely unrelated to the, to the pandemic, but said, oh, um, when asked a question about um, potential alien life, said, oh, yeah, there, there is the possibility that, yeah, we're not alone in in, in, in space and the universe and whatever else. And that's a possibility um, that he said. And then he ended up appearing on a bunch of conspiracy websites saying scientist confirms alien life or whatever else. And right. people just, as you say, like yeah. mishmash people's words, change them to fit their narrative. And, and that's a big problem, especially in, in the days when you can publish and write anything on social media with little to no um, accountability. Um, one of the things that also um, uh, I'd love to, um, to get your take on, obviously, as, as a journalist, there is a set process to writing a story, you know, from verifying a source to going from sort of pitch to, to 
being published. And quite often, I think for a lot of people who don't understand journalism, believe it's kind of like a blog. Yeah. You know, you, you whip up an article for, say, I don't know, The Guardian or The New York Times or whatever, send it to an editor, the editor slaps on an image, uh, maybe asks you to reference some things, and then it goes out there, which is clearly not true. Um, what's the process from going from when you have a hunch or, or you want to pitch an idea to then having it published? Well, it, it, it does vary from institution to institution and medium to medium, but you know, very, very broadly, I think what's really important for the public to understand is that journalists actually do have a process. Um, so usually as a, as a journalist, what would happen is you would have, so a story will come about one of two ways. Either you have an idea as a journalist or your editor has an idea or gives you an assignment. So in the first case, I have an idea <clears throat> as a journalist, uh, and so I might do a little bit of my own research just to see if this idea is actually has any merit. And then I would probably go to an editor and say, hey, I have an idea, and, and here's what I've found out about it so far. And the editor would say, okay, yeah, this is, this is worthy of, of investigation. Go and, go and do a story on it. So through that process, I'm going to collect information uh, yeah. Some of that might be, uh, you know, using public information that I find online. Um, usually I'm going to try to find some experts or someone who knows more about the topic that I happen to be researching than I do. And I'll interview them so that I can learn more about it. Also, I'm going to probably quote them in my article. Uh, I'm also going to try to find people who uh, directly know or experience whatever topic I'm uh, writing about. So if it happens to be... Uh, people who are social distancing during the coronavirus, I might try to find people who are actually living this experience so I can quote them directly. Um, if through the process of my reporting, I talk to people who are saying conflicting things, <clears throat> then I need to try to verify information. I need to try to understand uh, who's saying what. Is there a controlling reality? Is there is there a capital T truth? Or are there multiple ways to uh, experience or interpret whatever it is I happen to be uh, writing about? Um, I'm also going to verify the information yeah. that people have given me. So if an expert says that, <clears throat> you know, three out of 10 people who, you know, use public restrooms get coronavirus, I'm going to ask them, well, where did you get that information? Uh, how do I know it's true? I'm going to ask other experts, well, this expert said, you know, this fact, is that actually true? So there's a whole process of verification within the information gathering process. Then I write my story or I produce my radio piece or I produce my television piece. Usually uh, if I'm doing it, uh, if I'm doing a radio or TV piece, there are other reporters involved. There may be other editors involved. And then I'll show that to an editor or to a producer. They're going to look at it. They're going to ask me a bunch of questions. They're going to be like, how do you know that this is true? Or, you know what, you need to go back and you need to talk to that guy again and, and clarify this point. Mm -hmm. um, and then, depending on the institution, maybe another editor who's more senior looks at it and asks another series of questions that I, as a reporter, have to answer. Um, after all that happens, again, depending on the news organization, a fact checker might come in and and just look at I everything see. that I state as a fact. Did, did this researcher really, does this researcher actually work at the University yeah. of Edinburgh? Um, is this uh, statistic actually quoted in a study? Um, you know, does this person actually live in Liverpool? Uh, and then, 
and only then will a piece be published. So sometimes that process can take as little as a few hours. Sometimes that process uh, takes months or years, depending on what's being reported and in the depth. But the point is, is that standards-based journalists and news organizations have a very rigorous process because they don't want an error or a mistake or a mistruth to get through that final process, because in the end, journalists and news organizations know uh, their only currency is credibility. If you read something in my uh, newspaper or on my uh, website and you can prove that it's untrue, then uh, that's a problem for me. That means that uh, my standards didn't work, my process didn't work. And so then it throws into doubt the other work that I've done. And, uh, you know, there's nothing a journalist fears more than a correction. Uh, we don't want to be wrong. We every journalist get gets something wrong. You know, hopefully, usually it's a small detail or, or something that that's not you know central to uh, the process. But I think one of the th- interesting things is, given the amount of uh, material a place like the BBC or the Guardian or the New York Times produces on a daily basis, how few corrections there actually are. Uh, and I think that's a testament to the layers in the process that gets put out there. I think, uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we have seen in the age of social media is that uh, you know journalists are often rushing the process a bit. Uh, layers of editors have been removed, so we are we do see more errors. Uh, pop through. And it's not because journalists, you know, want there to be more editors. It's simply uh, oftentimes journalists are working in an environment that is, uh, you know, very time sensitive. It used to be as a a print reporter or as a text-based reporter, you had until whenever your newspaper was physically published in uh, the printing press. So, you know, you would get into the office at 10 a.m. and you might have if you you know if you had to delay as soon as possible you might have until 10 p.m. to write a story. Uh, now you know news sites want to get it up on Twitter. They want to get it up on their website. So that time has really uh, has really become crunched, and you still want to produce the same quality, but you have a lot less time. So I think what you end up seeing is you see stories get updated a lot. So somebody, uh, the New York Times might, you know, post a very short piece just to say, hey, here's what what's happened. We're investigating it. And then two or three hours later, they post a longer piece. And then two or three hours later, they post an even more in-depth piece after they've gotten to talk to five people. Um, I think what we have to realize is that, especially in a breaking news situation, is if we read an article once, that doesn't mean that that's the final version of that article or the final version of that story. It might be, say, the final version of that article, but there might be five or six follow-up articles that go into much more depth uh, as journalists learn more. So we need to uh, also train ourselves to engage with information repeatedly, uh, especially within the context of, of breaking news scenarios. It's almost like changing our um, our behavior, changing changing our uh, our behavior and attitude to news. Because you know, there's loads of people that will see a breaking news piece, and and, and you're right. You know, now nowadays news organizations are going to try and get out as quickly as possible. You know, because they want to be the first people to break whatever story they're going to break, and um, you know, speed 
reduces the chances of you getting everything absolutely right. And updating it is a way of getting around that. But quite often people will share the initial breaking news story or the breaking news bit. But I, the, the, the follow-on bits are going to be read or engaged with by a lot less people. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, think that's I, just the, the way we consume news at the moment. Yeah, you, you make a really, really good point. We do have to change our behaviors uh, when it comes to information because the information landscape has changed. Uh, it's very different from the one I described of me going to the library to get a two-week-old copy of The Guardian. Now we can get information instantaneously and not just from credible uh, sources of information. So we actually do need to adapt our, ourselves and we need to train ourselves. Uh, but one of the things that you know, I think you also point out is that you know, there's an old saying that nature abhors a vacuum. And unfortunately, there is always going to be a, a, a vacuum or there's always going to be a space of time between an event happening and a standards-based journalist being able to report about it because of that pro very lengthy process I spent, you know, several minutes describing. Now, if I'm a conspiracy theorist or someone who's spreading propaganda or misinformation, I don't have to go through all those pro processes I described. I can just make something up, post it on uh, my blog, or start tweeting at it. And the problem is, and if we're not savvy, if we're not media literate, the problem is, is that when I do a Google search or do a social media search about that event, the only information I'm going to find is from the conspiracy theorists, from the propagandists, because it's going to take half an hour, an hour, two hours, half a day for a standards-based journalist to get all the information, analyze it, process it, and turn it into something I can read. So in that interval, unfortunately, is when a lot of the, the, the bad information, the misinformation actually thrives because people want to know. I want to know what happened. I heard something happened. I need to know. I need to find out what happened. Well, we actually have to train ourselves to be very, very wary of information. If, if something happened 10 minutes ago, and there's someone who's saying, hey, I have all the information, I know everything about that, that's virtually impossible. And so as a consumer of information, I need to be very, very skeptical of all the information that I'm encountering within the first minutes or hours after a terrorist attack, after, during a natural disaster, because it does take time uh, to gather information, to vet that information, and to, to put it out there in a responsible way. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who... Uh, they live in that gap. They want to just take advantage of that gap. And that's where that misinformation spreads and then gets embedded into places like Google and YouTube and, and Twitter. Right. I mean, that, that, that's, I think coronavirus is probably the, the best, most recent example of that. I mean, when the, the pandemic, um, you know, when it was officially classed as a pandemic and the cases started rising in the UK before the media started doing, you know, more in-depth reporting and you, you had organizations like the BBC and so forth getting more scientists and so forth on board, there was very much, as you say, that gap where stories started coming out of, you know, if you drink Dettol, um, and if you don't know what Dettol is, it's a cleaning detergent, uh, it will um, it will alleviate you of the symptoms or cure you, I think it was, of coronavirus. And, you know, taking vitamins will somehow remove the symptom or the 5G conspiracy about it being linked. All of this kind of nonsense lived in that gap. And then, as you, as you quite rightly say, when news organizations and so forth started covering it, um, 
that those bits of information are still quite up on searches. And obviously when you've looked at it before, and I'm sure we've all done it, where we've all been on, say, YouTube, for instance, and you've gone down the rabbit hole of these kind of crazy videos and you start looking at all this weird and wonderful stuff on YouTube. And then you start to... Um, what's the word? You start to see that stuff more because, again, as you mentioned, algorithms want to show you what you've looked at before. So if you've lived in that gap, as you say, where you've engaged with this information, you're more likely to see it even when there's more credible information out there later on. So you're almost caught in this, ever at that point, never-ending cycle of where you're going to engage with that information more because that's what you've read before and that's what you've seen without actually seeing the the more in-depth fact-based reporting. Right. And that's exactly why we need to um, train ourselves in, in understanding information, right? So, um, you know, I've been trained to eat uh, relatively healthy. Um, I know that if I only eat hamburgers uh, every day for every meal, that that's going to have adverse consequences to me. So, I wish I could say I was um, trained to eat healthily as well, but I'd no, be lying that, to myself. I mean, that, that's been a lifelong process. It's not that I never eat hamburgers. It's just that I know that I can't eat it all the time. So even if I pass, you know, 10 hamburger restaurants, I'm not going to stop at every one and eat. I think, you know, you know, our media habits, our information habits, our social media habits, we need to sort of develop a similar thing where we we understand what entertainment is. You know, we may want to follow a, you know, a famous uh, reality TV star, and that may provide some great entertainment. But when that reality TV star then says, well, I have a cure for coronavirus, we need to understand that uh, we need to discount that information. Because this person is not an expert, they're not a journalist, they have, you know, they may be great at, uh, mm. you know, reality mm. TV, but that doesn't mean that they actually have the information I need. So helping people, especially young people, understand um, what those differences are, you know, what the difference between news and opinion is. I mean, that's, it's a, you know, to someone like me as a journalist, that seems like a very basic uh, thing to understand, but many people can't tell the difference if you present them with a piece of opinion, uh, especially one that resonates with them versus a piece of standards-based uh, news, they'll often say, well, they won't, they'll, they'll think that the piece of opinion is more newsy or, or more accurate than the piece of standards-based information. Uh, that's, a, that's a problem because there is a lot of opinion out there. And sometimes there is valuable information to be gleaned from opinion. But as a consumer of information, I have to do a lot more work before I'm going to believe and trust a piece of opinion-based information versus a piece of standards-based information. But that's a process, right? That's a, that's a series of skills and steps that we need to be taught. And you know, going back to what we said earlier, that's not going to happen uh, through osmosis. That's not just going to happen by people just being on social media and then becoming, oh, well, yeah, I understand that that's just this guy's opinion. Uh, and I shouldn't necessarily believe it. The truth is, whether you're 65 or 16, uh, if you haven't been trained in media literacy, you're much more likely to believe and share pieces of opinion and uh, unfortunately pieces of misinformation than standards-based information. And we, we see that all the time. Pieces of misinformation uh, spread far faster and far wider than fact checks. 
Uh, and the reason is, is because those pieces of misinformation are really designed to trigger us and designed to spread. Whereas pieces of fact-based information, you know, fact check is kind of like eating your vegetables. It's good for you, but, you know, people don't get excited about steamed broccoli necessarily. But, you know, a bag of, uh, a bag of crisps or, or some good Cadbury chocolate will, uh, you know, get my attention every time. But, you know, I understand that, you know, I probably should eat more broccoli than I should eat, uh, than I should eat crisps. So, you know, information, uh, you know, eat, consuming information, you know, we should start thinking about what our information diet is, just the way we think of what our, our, our actual, our, you know, our food-based diet is. I think that's, that's really not, I mean, aside from making me a little bit hungry, I think that's a really nice analogy because it is <laughs> it is true. You know, you see it and Instagram is a, a great example of this because you'll see people posting, you know, pictures of their large steaks or their beautifully cooked meals, um, the unhealthy ones. But you're not going to put up a picture of broccoli or whatever steamed veg, even though that's the actual ones that will will make you healthy and will... Uh, will be the one that's good for you. Um, and information is very much in the same way. Um, I remember that there's one there's one example that always stuck with me that um, you used when we worked together, which was the uh, shark on the water in the freeway image. Um, yeah. And I always found that quite... It always stuck with me because the... And, and, and just to give us a bit of context, this... Um, Whenever there is a, I believe, a um, hurricane in the States and there's some flooding, there's this image that appears um, with a shark casually on a freeway or motorway um, swimming along and someone saying, believe it or not, there is a shark on the freeway. Of course, this was uh, debunked, not true. Uh, but that image, because of its, I guess, comical value and people wanting to believe that to be true, gets shared quite widely. And I think it was the New York Times, I believe, that that debunked that story and found the guy and I think he, that found the guy that originally posted it and he kind of went, well, if people believe it, that's kind of their problem. Um, but yeah. that that story didn't get shared no, anywhere nearly as much, even though it was from a very reputable, pretty big news site. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the nature of, of misinformation and, and disinformation is that it's, um, it's much more appealing uh, and it's designed to be appealing. I mean, the truth is, uh, if we can talk about truth within the context of misinformation, um, <laughs> is that it is it is designed to override our ability to reason. So if I'm a propagandist or I have some kind of agenda, I'm going to create a piece of information which I'm going to target to you. I'm going to say, well, I'm going to target... Uh, People in the UK of Italian descent who have beards, who are named Matteo, who like, you know, crisps. Kind of feel and, a little bit targeted here, but go on. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm going to try to do everything in my power with what I know about my target audience to cry, try to create a piece of misinformation which will appeal to them so that it seems so right. I mean, we've all had this experience on social media. We've come across something that just wow, I was just thinking about that. Or, wow, that just makes so much sense to me. So I'm going to share it. And we don't stop and think, is it true? Because it resonates. It, it feels true. I, I, there was a friend of uh, my partner who is actually a, a teacher. And uh, she shared a piece of misinformation. And, you know, I did a quick search and said, oh, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't true. And she said, well, you know, it feels true. 
And, you know, as, as a journalist and, and, and a media literacy educator, I have a hard time with that. Like, um, you know, we want things to be true. Uh, we feel that things should be true. That doesn't mean that they are true. Uh, unfortunately, the people who create mis- and disinformation understand that feeling. And they count on that feeling being stronger than our ability or desire to reason, right? It feels good to share things that uh, resonate with us because it, it sort of it validates us, right? It validates, you know, if you're a vegan and you see a piece of information that says that people who eat meat are less intelligent, uh, you're going to share that because it somehow it validates and resonates with, with what you already believe. Uh, you're not necessarily going to stop and say, well, how, how, how can you measure that? Where's the study? Like, who reported this? You're not going to ask any of those questions because you feel validated. Um, and, and that's the problem, is that people who create this kind of misinformation uh, really count on us, you know, getting that feeling inside of us, whether it's a feeling of anger, whether it's a feeling of fear, whether it's a feeling of joy, whether it's a feeling that, oh, this is really funny. And that feeling becomes the thing that drives us to share that misinformation and to propagate it. It's, it's, it's the idea of bias, isn't it? It's the idea that if you are biased towards, uh, if you're a vegan and you're biased in a certain way towards people that eat meat, you're going to be more likely to believe that that story you said over over another story just because that buys into or ties into your inherent bias. So you want it to be true. Like you said, it's, it's a feelings thing. Um, and I mean, all of us have have biases. You know, if you, if you think you don't have a bias you're you're lying to yourself we all do um i it could be something as innocent as you know around food or it could be something around your drink or or, or whatever else but it could become something a bit more problematic when it goes into biases towards race gender ethnicity religion etc etc and obviously these biases I impact and influence the way we the way we engage with content um but obviously you're a journalist and a human being so obviously you will have biases as well and one thing i've always been quite curious about is how do you deal with your own bias when covering a story because you must have through your for your years of experience come across stories that you've been quite emotionally attached to sometimes and the end result of what you investigated turns out to be slightly opposite to what your internal bias may be um how do you deal with that well how have you dealt with that right um yeah, all, all journalists have biases because we're human beings. Uh, and that's, I think, as a journalist, important to, um, to recognize. In fact, it's, it's crucial. So I think the first step <clears throat> in dealing with bias as a journalist or as a human being, uh, because I do think that these lessons are applicable uh, beyond the, the world of journalism, is to, to understand and recognize what that bias is. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, I happen to be an atheist, um, and I did a story a few years ago about uh, Pentecostal churches in Europe. Um, it was a topic that interests me. There's an aspect to immigration um, to it, and so I spent you know months and more, actually, better part of uh, two years, actually visiting churches and spending time uh, in church services in places like the UK and Ukraine and, and here in, in Spain, where I happen to be. Um, and I, at the end, I produced a very long report about, uh, about this 
spread of Pentecostal uh, Christianity in Europe. And uh, a few years after that, I happened to be uh, chatting with, uh, with someone I know on social media, and they say, oh, I didn't know that you were a Christian. And I said, well, I'm not. I'm an atheist. They said, well, then why did you write this report? Why did you make these people seem favorable or, or paint them not in a negative light? I said, well, that's my job as a journalist is not to simply promote my point of view or to let my own perspective override what I happen to be reporting on. My, my job is to you know, show things as I, you know, accurately and, and as I see them, not as I want them to be. So you know, in that particular very specific case, as, a, as an atheist, I know I have my own beliefs, but I'm not reporting on my beliefs. I'm reporting on uh, these people and their beliefs, and I have to treat that with respect. Even if it's not what I believe, uh, it's important for me to be fair. Uh, and that's, I think, sort of that's perhaps the the overriding principle is one of fairness is to treat people in a way that's uh, that's decent when it, when it comes to my uh, to my reporting. So I think that you know we all need to understand what our biases are. We need to be sort of self-critical and self-analyze and say, and it, you know, in in some cases it's perfectly fine to have a bias. I might have a bias towards uh, being a vegan or chocolate cake or whatever. Those things aren't necessarily bad things, but within the context of information and misinformation, yeah. I do have to also understand that there are people who are going to target me uh, because of my predispositions, because of my biases. There's a great example actually in the UK of people uh, using misinformation uh, and targeting people who are fans of a particular football club and saying, hey, uh, if you enter our, uh, our online lottery, you will have an opportunity to win, you know, 50,000 pounds and a trip to, you know, a game at, you know, whatever a football team it happened to be. Uh, there was no lottery. There was no prize. It was just trying to... T- trying to harvest people who happen to be football fans to then later target them with different pieces of misinformation. Um, So it's simply being aware that, hey, you know, I happen to like West Ham or Manchester United. That's fine. You know, go, you know, go West Ham. But uh, that does then make you a target for, for information. But more broadly speaking, if you, if we have political leanings or social leanings, you may, you know, feel like you're a progressive or a conservative, realize that there are people out there who are going to create information or misinformation which specifically targets you because of your political viewpoint. And you should be aware of that so that when you see something as someone who, say, is a person on a political left and it's an attack against a conservative politician or policy, is it true? Like you may think instinctively, man, I really don't like that conservative policy or that conservative politician. So your reflex is to think, oh yeah, that's true. That totally makes sense that that politician would say that. Did that politician say that? Can you find uh, a legitimate standards-based news organization that has, you know, has video or has quoted the politician as saying that? Or is it just somebody posting on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or Snapchat? Uh, these are the things that we that we need to begin to train ourselves to do, so that we don't let our our biases, our perspectives, our predilections uh, 
impede our ability to process new information. And that's really the challenge is that, especially within the context of something like coronavirus, um, I think one of the sad things that we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum uh, allowing their predispositions or their, their previously held positions to interfere with their ability to process information, which will help keep them safe. And obviously, within the context of a pandemic like uh, coronavirus, that's incredibly dangerous. Completely, completely. Um, one, and, and this is a bit out of less fi- left field, but um, something that I did want to touch on, because uh, again, t- on on the topic of misinformation, one of the things that we saw, at least in the UK, um, was that the again 5g conspiracies was one example where um for instance celebrities started sharing it initially which which is what ballooned it a little bit in the uk um shared it because they obviously believed that at that point in time i think a lot of celebrities apologized afterwards for doing so but when it when it comes from also a verified source it almost throws out some of the uh some of the things that you can do to check if a source is real or not, because if it's coming out of a verified account, it becomes so, even harder. Well, so, 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 right. So that's a really important thing. And this is, again, I think one of these things we misunderstand about how social media works, right? So when we see the blue check mark on Twitter or uh, on Instagram that this account is verified, the only thing that that says is that this person is who they say they are. It doesn't mean that this person is not a twit. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that this person, all of a sudden, everything that they say or post on social media is verified. All it means is that this person actually is David Beckham or you know Posh Spice or whoever happens to be the verified account. It has nothing to do with the content of that account. So that's a really important thing to, to recognize. If someone is really great at uh, singing pop songs, okay, that's that's wonderful. It doesn't mean that they have any expertise outside of their 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 field of celebrity, right? But again, we we tend to transfer um, our admiration for the football star or the movie star into a belief that everything they say, especially those things that they say that resonate with us are accurate. Um, these people are human beings. You know, a movie star is great at reciting lines. They, they didn't get a qualification in law or medicine or, or anything outside of being a movie star. But we often forget that because I happen to like this movie star and what they're saying makes sense to me. So it's almost like... And often that's where, that's where the conversation in our head ends. And we don't say, but is it true? And that's the next step that we all need to begin to take. It's almost like you're getting hit by two things, aren't you? You're getting hit by the the fact that they're sharing something that confirms your bias towards um, whatever that issue may be. But secondly, you're also being hit by the fact that this person is someone that you admire, that you like. So it becomes even harder at that point. It's not just confirming your bias, but it's also confirming your bias from someone that you admire uh, and you like in film or music or whatever it may be. So it becomes even harder for you to step back and question if that thing is real. My, my, well, my, my, and, it, go on. and that also, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but that also happens with our friends and family, right? So we may love our uncle or our parents or our grandparents. We may have a best mate who's, you know, our, our moon and our sun. 
But that doesn't mean that they're suddenly become a medical expert in the time of a pandemic. So what happens is we transfer our trust and our loyalty from, you know, from our friends and family to the information that they share on social media. And we need to actually begin to sever that link because unfortunately, as much as, you know, you, you may love your aunt Sally, it doesn't mean that what she's sharing about 5G and coronavirus is true. Uh, and we need to separate, you know, our love for the person versus uh, the informa- trusting the information that they happen to be sharing. That's a really, really good point. Do you believe in censorship on this level? Because one of the things that has been a consistent conversation in, in, in the UK specifically, and I think other, other countries as well across, across Europe, is this issue around censorship. Because... Um, like you say, we need to sever that relationship. We need to change the way we um, deal and engage with media and consume information. Um, but others have been saying, actually, the government and social media companies and all these platforms should take responsibility. And when stuff like 5G, for example, which is clearly conclusively just not true, um, they should just block it and censor it. Mateo, I thought you were only going to ask me easy questions. <laughs> I thought that was was our secret <laughs> agreement here. Um, you know, if if I could answer uh, that question in, in thirty seconds or less, um, I think I would probably become the head of a of a social media company or or be elected to 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 government. Um, I'm going to try to answer that question, but it's a very complex question. Really complex uh, question that, that, that doesn't that doesn't have a, an easier pat answer. And I'm going to start by unpacking it a little bit. So when we talk about censorship. Uh, it's a big word, it's a scary word, and it means different things in different contexts. So I, I'm going to start with the idea of government censorship, right? Because maybe that's kind of the classical uh, sense of the word, uh, the government outlawing or preventing or punishing people for saying certain things or writing certain things. Um, you know, I'm an American, I'm from the United States. Um, over the past hundred years, the, the government has taken a more... Um, permissive attitude towards things that people can say in print uh, in public. Um, as a journalist, I, I, as an American journalist, I tend to, um, to like that because um, when the government gets in the business of saying, uh, deciding what people can and can't say, uh, that's very easily abused. And we see historically that being abused in the United States, in, in the UK, in Europe, in, in less developed democracies as well. Um, so as, a, as an American and as a journalist, my, my predisposition, right, my bias is to say that, that censorship is, is generally speaking not good. Um, obviously, that's a very specific um, perspective. It's probably not the majority perspective among governments in the world. And one of the things we're seeing around coronavirus is governments begin to punish uh, what they are calling fake news or misinformation around coronavirus, but we're also already seeing governments uh, being accused of abusing uh, that to punish people who are opponents to the government or opponents to government policy. So um, when we talk about censorship within the government context, it is a very, very tricky business. It's a very delicate balance because, um, you know, there are certainly going to be cases where, you know, 99.9% of people are going to agree that's a piece of misinformation. That's a, that's a, that's a piece of fake news and that's dangerous to the public health. 
And then there are going to be lots of gray areas and who gets to decide and, and what process of review there, that there is an appeal and what safeguards against abuse there are. It opens up a whole can of worms that, um, mm. that I think are, mm. are, are very difficult to deal with. Now, within the context of censorship or you know, perhaps more, more accurately moderation on social media platforms, um, again, it's tricky. Who's deciding um, how do they decide? Are they being transparent? Are there a transparent set of guidelines and rules that everyone has access to? By and large, on social media platforms, there are not. Uh, certainly, we can look at places like Twitter and Facebook, and uh, not only are the standards different on each of the platforms, even uh, on the platforms themselves, you can point to multiple cases where almost the same thing gets said, and one person gets punished or blocked, and another person doesn't. Um, the and to be clear, I think that social media platforms have a large role to play in stemming the tide of disinformation and misinformation. They should not let their platforms be used to spread misinformation that's dangerous to the public. Um, and there are ways in which they can they can reform their platforms to do that. That having been said, the solution ultimately to the problem of misinformation and disinformation, especially dangerous information, or misinformation rather, doesn't lie in the hands of regulators. It doesn't lie in an algorithm. It doesn't lie in a browser plugin, and it doesn't lie in the hands of a tech CEO. It lies with us. Um, and that's not a cop-out. That's not saying that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram shouldn't do more and need to be held responsible. I believe absolutely they should. That having been said, uh, they haven't done a great job of it so far. Uh, there's no indication that they're going to suddenly reform and do a much better job um, in the future. But what I know as a journalist and as a media literacy educator is that there are sets of tools and practices that I can teach anyone that will protect them against the most horrific torrent of misinformation, right? Like I, I wade in the swamp of mis and disinformation every day on social media as a journalist. I don't really worry about getting infected. Why? Because I've been inoculated, right? I've, I've been vaccinated against misinformation because I've learned a set of practices and a set of tools that allow me to protect myself. I think we need to begin to transition from a perspective of someone needs to protect me against this, which comes from a, I think, an outdated sense of what the media landscape was like. You know, when I was a young person, the media landscape was very mediated, right? There were layers between me and information. There were a very specific few set of channels that information could get to me. Today, it's the Wild West, right? It's a very different situation. I have access to information from all over the world, and more importantly, information is targeting me and people are targeting me with misinformation. So I need to protect myself, right? I can't trust that Mark Zuckerberg is going to protect me. I can't trust that Ofcom is going to protect me or protect you or the FCC in the United States. I actually have the ability to protect myself. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean that we remove the responsibility that government agencies or tech companies or social media companies have because they have an important role to play. But ultimately, the best person 
And sometimes the only person who can protect you from misinformation is actually yourself. And it's up to educators and parents to give young people the tools that they need to actually be able to navigate the information landscape that they are living in. I hope that that somewhat answered the the question. (laughs) No, it did. Thank you very much. And I think what's clear is that the vaccine to the issue of misinformation or the virus of misinformation is clearly media literacy. Um, But much like regular, much like actual vaccines, we have to convince people that they're effective and, and that they work. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of baffling that we're actually, you know, having a debate in the 21st century about the efficacy of vaccines. But again, that's, that's the power of misinformation. But you know, we do have a solution to viral rumors and viral misinformation. It's, 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 as you said, it's media literacy, but we have to convince the, uh, the educators and the parents that, hey, this stuff works. And, and you know, in, in the years that I've been doing this, and I think in the years that you've been doing this, you see that it works. But, you know, we almost have to build a herd immunity to misinformation, right? If all of us are vaccinated against misinformation and all of us uh, have understand the techniques around verification and, and how to analyze information, then that viral information can't spread, right? It literally can't spread because we're not spreading it and it dies off. Uh, but if we don't have that herd immunity, then it runs rampant. And I think that's the million dollar question, isn't it? How can we convince everybody that this stuff works and i think we are getting there the fact that there is more there are more organizations now than probably ever before um working on media literacy the fact that schools are becoming a lot more receptive to it Um, and although there is more misinformation out there now i think there is there is a definitely a wave towards uh, media literacy supporting media literacy and making sure that people that come out of school now have um, the tools necessary to engage in um, in the media information landscape. Damaso Reyes, thank you so much. That was amazing and really insightful. Um, if people want to follow you on social media and follow your work, where can they uh, where can they find you and what's your handles? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, Damaso Reyes on Twitter. Uh, I'm also have founded a new media literacy consulting and training organization called clarify.media. So you can go there and learn more about the work that we do. Amazing. Amazing. Damaso, thank you so much. And thank you to you all for listening to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction, produced by Shoutout UK, recorded and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department. Thank you very much.